The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. one 800 913 The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world really works. And one of the interesting ways in which the world really works is that far more than parents creating children, children create parents. And I doubt that there's anybody listening who hasn't had the experience of either seeing somebody you know utterly change after having had a child. And I hear this most often from men who speak to me in wonderment about a friend of theirs who got married. And certainly there were dramatic changes after their friend got married. But the changes after they got married were dwarfed by the changes after they had a child. And and women are also changed by having children, but perhaps not quite as much. One of the most important changes that does occur after having a child is you start thinking differently about the future. Uh, So, for instance, uh, guys who are into extreme sports, um, you know, even such things as base jumping, which means jumping off tall buildings or bridges or radio antennas, uh, wearing a parachute, mountain climbing, um, uh, bungee jumping, all kinds of um, motorcycle racing, many, many kinds of extreme sports. Uh, I hear from men all the time that as soon as they have a child, they start thinking differently and ease back, sometimes giving it up altogether. And uh, sometimes their teammates and friends worry about them. They're going out with somebody. Oh, now they're getting married. Oh, if they have a child, that's going to be the end. It's a well-known phenomenon that even men who exhibit a reckless disregard for their own lives change once they have children. Not every single man, obviously, but it happens enough uh, to be a noticeable phenomenon and, and one worth talking about and looking at. Well, what happens is that uh, if you don't have children, then in general, your tendency to think about the future, well, 
it's a little bit diminished. And, uh, and that is exactly what we see happening. Um, for instance, uh, well known is that um, economists generally figure out long-term effects. You read the, I mean, classical economists like uh, uh, von Mises or Schumpeter, or even going back to the late 18th century, Adam Smith, uh, they they look at multi-generational effects of what, of the systems they're studying. However, however, uh, one of the men who perhaps more than anyone else reshaped modern economics was a man called John Maynard Keynes, who by all accounts was a very bright guy. However, uh, his uh, approach, which really became the norm for industrialized countries after World War II at a conference known as the Bretton Woods Conference, uh, John Maynard Keynes, or Keynesian economic theory named after him, basically said it's okay for governments to spend money they don't have because governments possess infinite ability to tax and countries can create infinite amounts of wealth. And so it's just fine for governments to spur economies by spending money they don't have. Well, that, of course, is the genius concept that has led the United States of America to a cataclysmic and and potentially catastrophic 20 trillion dollars of debt. Uh, Europe, other European countries the same, uh, Greece, uh, Italy, Spain, Portugal, all these countries teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, uh, were all countries practicing John Maynard Keynes' approach. Well, uh, John Maynard Keynes was a homosexual gentleman, never had any children at all. Uh, did this have something to do with the way he looked at economics? Of course it did. How could it not have? Basically, Keynesian economics is great for your generation because it lets you spend money that's going to have to be repaid by who? Your children. Uh, duh, no children, don't care. Let your kids pay for it. And uh, not surprisingly, I do not consider it an anyway a coincidence that John Maynard Keynes proposed economic policies that were essentially unigenerational, policies that sounded awfully good for one generation. And it's after that that the intrinsic flaw becomes very evident indeed. And uh, it isn't just in the economic area, not just John Maynard Keynes, but interestingly enough, many of the current leaders of Europe uh, the people who are in charge of uh, the European Union and parts of the European Union, uh, a surprisingly high number of them have no children. Uh, does this have any impact on the policies we see being carried out in Europe? Sure, it's got to. Uh, if, if you've ever wondered why this complete indifference to the dramatic changes being brought about by limitless immigration. You know, what was German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Angela Merkel thinking when she said, we'll take in a million immigrants? Well, <laughs> perhaps it would help if you knew that uh, she's never had any children. And how about the Dutch Prime Minister, Mark Rutte? No children. Um, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, the recently um, 
uh, elected president, new president of France, Emmanuel Macron, uh, no children. As a matter of fact, um, not that I'm particularly interested in his marital arrangements. It's just that, you know, you do know that uh, under different circumstances in the United States, this would be uh, very much spoken of. But when he was a teenager, uh, he had a teacher at school and she was married with three children. And um, a rather passionate relationship developed between the two of them. Um, his parents even sent him away to another town in order to get him away from this uh, infatuation that was going on and being returned by the married mother of three children. Anyways, um, she is now his wife, and uh, we know nothing at all about her husband and her three children, but children. Uh, she... Um, her children were there when he was at the election. Oh, they were. Her children were there. Oh, very, in, from, oh, very interesting. You might wonder father. who I'm talking to, and I'll, I'll share that with you in just a moment. If she was uh, a little closer to a microphone, you'd probably have known, known as well. But, uh, but yeah, um, at any rate, so she is uh, 64 years old. He is 39 years old. No children, and for the, for the present, not looking like they're going to be any. Um Swedish Prime Minister, by the way, Stefan Löfven, Luxembourg's Prime Minister, uh, Scottish First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, and on and on the list goes. Numerous European leaders without children. Now, to just uh, put things you know, into a bit of perspective, let's also be aware that George Washington, the father of the United States of America, was also childless. Um, so was Golda Meir, one of the. Uh, oh no, I'm. No, I'm she sorry. had children. She she regretted. Oh, she. That's right. I'm she sorry. Said correction. She felt she wasn't a good mother. Yeah, correction on that. Okay, fine. Uh, but George Washington didn't have children. Uh, Vladimir Putin has children. Uh, Adolf Hitler had no children. Uh, even Stalin had uh, did have children, but uh, a bizarre relationship. His oldest son Yakov. Um, was so abused by uh, Joseph Stalin that he tried to shoot himself and survived the suicide attempt. And from then onwards, for a number of years, Stalin publicly joked that his eldest son is so useless he can't even shoot straight. Uh, the next time his son tried to commit suicide, he did succeed. But um, in general, it does appear that there is an unusually high number of European leaders that are childless. And I thought I'd look at this because uh, this particular show is being released uh, just about on Mother's Day. And uh, as you know, I'm not a big fan of Mother's Day or Father's Day for that matter, because in the Lappin household, even... Uh, every one of our children knows that every day is, in fact, Mother's Day. And the beneficiary of that 365-day-long Mother's Day celebration in the Lappin household is right here in the studio with me. And here is Susan Lappin. We've not tried this before on this podcast, I don't think. No, have we? we have not. Although you sat in for me on the on my KSFO radio show and the KVI radio, a number of my I radio did. shows you have sat in for me. 
Uh, I've heard it said that after you would uh, host a radio show for me while I was away, you felt like walking around with a paper bag. And then realized that a paper bag would have nothing. I just couldn't speak. (laughs) No one knew what I looked like anyway. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. One of the advantages of radio, of course. And... um, and so here we are together on uh, the show this uh, this particular day, talking about. I want to talk a little bit about Mother's Day, and uh, it seemed to me to be uh, silly to do that without the best mother in the whole world being right here in the studio together with me. So uh, I've often said publicly, by the way, and I'll say it again on the show. I just said it in that speech in San Francisco recently that... Uh, the one, one I was shouted down. No one, they, now <laughs> no one part, heard it. This part they didn't <laughs> shout down at all. But um, the, 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 what I said was that uh, one of the greatest of many, many goodnesses you've done me is homeschooling the children and uh, really contrib- which contributed so enormously to the close connectivity and the unity within our family came about because of, what was it, uh, 15 years you homeschooled I think it was 16, actually. 16 years. You, that was your job. That was. was really your full-time job, uh, was homeschooling, no question about it. Okay, so, so we were talking, and, um, you know, in service to our listeners, as you know, I read uh, all kinds of magazines. I should say I skim them. Um, magazines ordinarily I honestly would have very little interest in reading Vogue magazine I mean come on um, I my, my fashion sense has been criticized more than once but I read it because I pick up uh, cultural indicators in there that I think would be helpful or interesting to our listeners uh, Vanity Fair is another one um, and I mean, Vanity Fair is so irrationally insane about Donald Trump, and and they've been this way for more than a year, that it gets tiresome. I mean, it's almost as if it's a ridiculous obsession. However, every now and then, they do have interesting things. And one of the things they just came up with was... A, uh, an article about Anne of Green Gables. Which you have not read. And no, I, I've never read it. That's I have, true. so that's, I think, why I'm here today. It, that's exactly right. Uh, would you would you consider it early 20th century chiclet? No. It's not chiclet. No, it's fine. It's good literature. Fine literature. Okay, yeah. And uh, I didn't know that in the word chiclet... I think it's it, disparaging. It, it, it's disparaging too. I think too. so. So, um, so Jane Austen is not chiclet. I don't think so, Okay, no. fine. So uh, I will not use that term. But I, I do know that all our daughters read it. More than one. It's a series. It's a series. And, and they read the, it. I mean, it was a big... More big, than once. It was a big part of... Yes. Then, uh, I, by the way, do you know if our son ever read it? I don't, but I do know he did see the Canadian broadcasting series because he was always outvoted whenever we had a vote on it. We always did movies as a family. There was no such thing as go to your own room and watch your TV because we didn't have TV. But he he tended to get voted down. So Jane Austen and Anne of Green Gables were big favorites with six sisters. He he never got to see what he wanted to see. So he probably saw. So we're talking about the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, The CBC produced a four-hour miniseries for their television on Anne of Green Gables in the mid-80s, and it was fantastic, wasn't it? It was very well done. It was very popular, and the reason that Vanity Fair is discussing it right now is my understanding is that Netflix has produced a new series, a new Anne of Green Gables. I think it may have just started running on Netflix. Okay, so uh, 
We'll, we'll take a quick break, and then we are going to uh, talk about the, the new Anna Green Gables and what it has to say particularly about motherhood. Well, actually, with the old Anna Green Gables, because I haven't one. seen the new one. Yeah, right. No, and well, the book really is what we're going to be talking about more than right. anything else. But a um, uh, quick break, and before I uh, pause, I want to remind you that the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, the the uh, resource that I want to commend to your attention uh, for today's show is... Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. And uh, If you were just talking about Europe, of course, and the European Union building was built to resemble the Tower of Babel. And we talk about that. And we do. And in the study guide, there's a 16-page study guide that accompanies the audio program of Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. You will see a photograph of the headquarters of the European Union Parliament in Strasbourg, France. And uh, you will see that it was built to resemble the the most famous depiction of the Tower of Babel done by Peter Bruegel the Elder, a uh, Belgium or Flemish painter. And um, why why do the Europeans insist that there's some kind of bizarre relationship between them and the and uh, the Tower of Babel? The answer is because there is. And all of that and the rise of socialism and the uh, seductive allure that socialism continues uh, to um, uh, exercise on the human imagination, all of that explained in Tower of Power over at rabbidaniellappin.com. So head over there, take a look, and if not for you, then for somebody you care about, this is a very helpful insight, a helpful teaching on how the world really works. Back in just a moment with Anne of Green Gables, Vanity Fair, Motherhood and Childlessness. Don't go away. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. If you're in the market for a new mattress, casper.com slash rabbi should be the next website you visit. Casper created an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It's one perfect mattress, and it's sold directly to you, eliminating the need to endure one of those commission salesman mattress stores with inflated prices. Casper is shipped for free right to your door, astonishingly delivered in a sleek, how did it fit in there box? You just let it unfold, and there you have it, one of the most supportive sleep surfaces ever designed, hassle-free. Casper is made in America, and Time magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. Breathable latex and memory foams are combined for just the right sink and just the right bounce. Try Casper for 100 nights free, and if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything. Right now, get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash rabbi. That's casper.com promo code rabbi. Terms and conditions apply. casper.com slash rabbi. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. We're back, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where we discuss, no, where we reveal how the world really works. And what could be more real than speaking about motherhood, speaking about the role of reproduction in political leadership? 
Uh, Susan Lappin joins me in the studio for today's show. I think it's the first time actually on the podcast. And uh, the reason I invited her is because I was totally inadequate uh, to to do the show on my own, not only because it deals with motherhood, I, I can handle that, but because I'm speaking about a wonderful uh, children's literature series called Anne of Green Gables, and it's a series that Susan Lappin knows very well indeed. Um, what struck us both really very uh, noticeably was that uh, Vanity Fair magazine is has is running a story about Anna Green Gables. Why? Well, because although the the novels were written in the early 20th century, I think in 1908, uh, the, the, the the best loved and uh, and most popular television depiction of it was from the Canadian broadcasting folks in the mid 80s. And now, uh, I, is it a Netflix production, Susan? I believe so. I think so. it That's might be I a read. Netflix production. They are redoing um, Anna Green Gables. And I think some celebrities who may have already seen some of the uh, some of the new show. Well, I don't know if they saw it. Just in Vanity Fair basically asked a number of women. I have to admit, I didn't know the names, but I gather they're famous. Um, what they loved. And they... To be fair, they were asking them what they loved about the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's movie of Anne of Green Gables, not about the books, though many of them said they had read the books. But what struck me, and and just want to make a point, that you're making the point not just about mother... The reason you're talking about motherhood is because it happens to be Mother's Day. Right. But you're making the point that many of the male leaders of Europe do not have children. In other words, this isn't really a male-female. It's that you get affected, period. Yes. By not having children, and it's no healthier for men not to have children than for women not to have children. I, I would go further. I'd be very specific, and this is something you and I have seen over the years. With you know, we we meet many, many, many people, and uh, one of the things we've seen is that um, in the same way that marriage nudges you one step up the slope of becoming a mature adult. Uh, you know, one of the ways you stop being an adolescent is when you get married. Well, marriage kicks you only so far up the slope of of becoming an adult. Having a child uh, completes the job, takes you even further. And I'll just point out that we know people who are not blessed with children. It's not something on demand. You can't put in a demand for children. But the ones that we've seen who have moved up the stage in adulthood have at that point taken responsibility, whether it's for nieces, nephews, foster children, adopted children, but there is a recognition they need someone from the next generation in their lives. Because couples we know who, for whatever reason, remain childless, um, also remained, and I don't mean this very disparagingly, uh, I I mean it as a sociological observation more than any uh, criticism per se, and that is they remain childlike themselves. Many people find it charming, uh, but it can also be a bit grotesque when you get a a middle-aged couple, childless, and who have not involved themselves somehow or another in the next generation. There is a sort of... uh, 
Peter Pan-like quality to the couple. They're sort of a slightly childlike kind of couple, and it's a little bit—it's a little bit odd. It's certainly noticeable. I just want to point out that when I talk, when we talk about it being involved in the next generation, I think I've read more than one article where women who've decided made a conscious decision not to have children because of their careers, and they talk about. But I have a niece and I get to be the fun aunt. Being the fun aunt is not what we're talking about. We're talking about accepting responsibility to not be the fun, to actually be involved with raising the next generation. It's easy to be fun, but it's a growth thing to actually have to say, hey, I'm an adult. I have to model and exhibit and and rear this younger generation to, to behave in the right way. So um, back to Anne. Anne, yeah. So it's a look. It's a wonderful series, and the 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 movie that the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation did was wonderful. The series, however, the the movie does not depict all the books in the series. Where does it end? It ends when Anne basically accepts and realizes that she's going to marry Gil Blythe, Gilbert Blythe. The books go on. The books go on through Anne becoming a mother, and actually not only. Through her becoming a mother, it actually goes into where even one of her sons dies. I hope I'm not doing a spoiler, a spoiler alert here. <laughs> a spoiler. One of her sons dies in World War One. More than one of her sons goes off to fight. So it follows her and her husband as they build a family and the children, you know, not just have children, but but actually have children who grow up. Now, one of the things about her that I do know. And this may come as a surprise to people who are raised or who are at least knowledgeable of the kind of literature that young girls are given today. I think we'll be surprised to learn that back in 1908, what was her name? Montgomery, right? L.M. Montgomery. L.M. Montgomery. She depicts Anne as a very clever, bright young woman, right? She does, which is also, quite frankly, Louisa May Alcott in the late 1800s depict Joe Mark, you know, depicted uh, there's a myth which uh, which is well the only in the 1960s would, did we begin to acknowledge that women could be bright that's nonsense of course they're you know most of the heroines quite frankly of the earlier times which brings us to the point which is that there is a uh, a well uh, promoted myth that if you are a stay-at-home mom you must be pretty dumb well, so what's interesting to me about the series is Anne is depicted, and she comes. She comes as an orphan, and she's raised by this brother and sister, a, a brother and sister who thought they were getting a young boy to help on the farm as the brother got older, and ended up with this feisty, redheaded um, girl who happens to, as she goes through school, they realize that she's the brightest student in the class, and her immediate rival is the young man who's going to become her husband down the road. But Anne is depicted, she she is extremely bright, she's articulate, she's competent, she's capable, and she's fun. And when the women in Vanity Fair who spoke about what they loved about the series, a number of them made the point that it was that she was a role model. They, it was a role model of someone who could be a little different, um, who wasn't afraid of speaking her mind, even though she got into trouble regularly for speaking her mind, you know, to adults in an impolite way. But she was, she had strong opinions and she was extremely bright. And her fellow students celebrated when she wins an award at one point. Her fellow students put her in the movie on her shoulder, on their shoulders, and and this is seen as wonderful. And she goes off to advanced education, but the movie ends, and none of these women talk about the fact that in the books, when she becomes a wife and a mother, she becomes a wife and a mother, 
And there isn't that this isn't a contradiction. It's not, oh, what a shame. Ella Montgomery does not say, oh, and what a shame. Here she was, this bright girl who could have gone out and become a doctor herself, and instead she marries a doctor and she raises this family. And I think that is a a sad thing, and that the concept that by devoting yourself to to the next generation, to raising the next generation that that's not a worthwhile activity for a bright woman. Like, it's okay if you're, look, if you're not very smart, if all you're going to do is bag groceries, and I don't mean to insult anyone who bags groceries, but if if that's the highest level you could possibly do, then okay, go have children. But if you're an intelligent woman, well, then maybe you want to have a child, so go give birth. But for goodness sake, don't devote yourself. Don't see this as a career. So uh, the idea that... Um, raising children is actually shaping the future of the society in which you live is is something we've lost, really. Very much. You know, we have a friend um, who's a periodontist and in Washington State, and he speaks on he would have been in school in the 1960s. 60s. He speaks about his teacher's being graduates of Radcliffe, which was, of course, at that point, the Women's College of Harvard. I don't know. It's probably gone co-ed as well. Uh, Maybe it doesn't even exist anymore. I don't know. But um, he speaks about having brilliant teachers and bemoans the fact that his children's teachers were not brilliant because a woman who would go to Harvard today wouldn't become a third grade teacher in most cases. And, you know, it's it. Uh, certainly, when our ch- when our daughter decided not to go to um, educational school for you know to go for an advanced degree in education, one of the reasons was that the people the requirements to get into educational school were the lowest SAT requirements for any advanced degree. In other words, the impl- we we were almost courting unintelligent people, and there are fantastic teachers out there, and there's certainly intelligent teachers, but we know too many kids who are actually in classes with teachers who are illiterate, and who who. Are, are not very, very bright. And this has been one of the side effects of the women's movement is that we're giving our kids, or many, many, many kids are being offered a third-rate education because we've told bright people, this isn't the field for you. Right. Um, so, okay, that is the, that is the, the story. Is there anything else we, that you and I discussed today that we said would, uh, would be interesting to find No, I, I just thought it was interesting. And I, you know, I'm, I'm very wary of watching the new Anne of Green Gables because I'm sure that it will be, I doubt, da- well, first of all, you know, in general, they tend to destroy things. When you have a really good thing, yeah, leave, it's, it leave it alone. But my guess is that there's going to be much more of a feminist and a, a slant to it, um, where the other, the, Canadian program was just charming. That's yeah. all it was. Uh, well, you are charming. Well, thank and, you. Um, I will wish you Mother's uh, Happy Mother's Day, as I do 365 days a year. Uh, well, actually, you don't. If sorry to correct you here, but one of the things because this is a pet you're not going to embarrass me in no, front of hundreds of thousands of our closest no, friends. No, I'm going to say my children. You may have trained our children to wish me Happy Mother's Day 365 days a year, but one of our pet peeves actually is when parents, when spouses start calling each other mommy and daddy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't like we that don't like at that. All. So yes. no, you don't wish me Happy Mother's Day. What? No, because that, I'm, that's not. I'm not your Fair mother. Enough. You may wish your mother. Yeah, which I, I really should have wished. You should have much more well <laughs> when she was around right, here. Let's yes. let's not tell any embarrassing <laughs> stories about that just yet. Uh, we'll we'll wait until people know us far better before we 
disclose some of those little incidents from my childhood. <laughs> but uh, my mom was quite a lady, though. She really was. She and, certainly uh, was. So, uh, Susan, thank you so much. I will let you go. I know you've got a bunch of stuff to take care of, but I didn't want to do these Well, thank uh, you for inviting alone. me. Thank you for having me as a guest on your podcast. And, and now, enjoy. here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to ask people to let us know, Okay. Uh, this is now embarrassing. You to, now you're embarrassing me. No, for heaven forbid. Uh, folks, I want you to go to our website, rabbidaniellappin.com, okay? And there's a Contact Us tab. I want you to write and tell us, and you can be perfectly honest about this, do we want to have Susan on some more or not? Now, I say you can be honest about this because we we get a lot of fan mail uh, all the time, and a lot of it has to do with our television show. Okay, which you can, by the way, if you haven't seen it yet, you can at tct.tv. Again, uh, on the website, there's more information. But anyway, the point I'm making is that uh, Susan and I do this daily television show together. We do a half an hour show. And um, every now and then we get letters that make us crack up because some letters are written to me and they say, you know, you really must stop your wife interrupting. We're trying to hear what you're saying. And she just pipes in, you know, we crack up. And then there's just as many letters we there get. There are more. Excuse me. There are more <laughs> letters. And there are even more letters that we get. Uh, from people saying, it's so wonderful that your wife is on the show and you give her time to speak. We really appreciate that. You must give her even more time to speak. So at any rate, you let us know how you come down on the topic of do we want more Susan Lappin on this podcast? Uh, Rabbi Daniel Lappin is dot com is the website. Uh, the, the resource is... Um, Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, and contact us tab to send us a quick email to let us know how you would like us uh, to double team or tag team or not moving forward. Um, quick break. I'll be right back. Don't go away. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the Chris Salcedo Show. Health insurance doesn't mean health care. And Obamacare proves that. As individuals are saddled with high deductibles, high premiums, as a matter of fact, those deductibles require you to spend a boatload of money before, before you even get coverage kicking in. The Chris Salcedo Show. Weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back. We proceed with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, uh, where we've been speaking about motherhood. Now, look, uh, there are many who will say, oh, you're a man. You know as much about motherhood as somebody who's lived his entire life in the Sahara Desert knows about fly fishing. But no. This is part of the vigorous but uh, misguided attempt uh, to silence conversation and to suppress debate in every possible way. Because the, the notion is that unless your skin is of a certain color, you have nothing whatsoever to say about any topic having to do with people possessing that color skin. 
and it works in every direction. Um, there is also the idea that people must be persecuted for what you believe is in their hearts. And that's really what happens when, when people are accused of being um, homophobic and sexist and, uh, and uh, uh, Islamophobic and uh, all of these uh, things. This takes us back to the day where people used to try and fight for freedom of speech. And we always remember the, uh, the, the indictment of what used to be called the thought police. Do you remember that? Uh, we don't need thought police around here. Always used to say it. In other words, you cannot condemn somebody for what you believe is in his mind, his heart, or his soul. First of all, only God knows what's in anybody's heart, mind, or soul. And secondly, you still can't punish somebody for what is in his soul. And this is precisely why I strenuously and vocally opposed hate crime legislation. I was among the very few Jews, overwhelmingly the Jewish, oh yeah, yeah, let's go for it. The, the Jewish community as a whole, oh, they loved hate crime legislation. What a great idea. We'll be able to nail all those terrible anti-Semites. Look, I really don't care if somebody hates Jews in his heart, his soul, or his mind. I really don't. I don't care if you hate red-headed people or people with green teeth or whatever is in your head. That's yours. I only care about whether you damage people or property. Do you vandalize property? Do you steal property? Do you uh, um, assault or kill people? Those are problems. And hate crime legislation did absolutely nothing about that because there are already laws on the books against damaging other people's property or harming their persons. So what did it add? Nothing other than to give, well, to essentially to give government yet another thumbscrew to apply when necessary or when government deems it to be necessary. A totally different kettle of fish entirely and one that... Uh, I think is is potentially very dangerous indeed, and that's uh, and that's why it is. I think that it's it's crucial that we reopen um, conversation, that we reopen speech. We we just do have to get back to a time where uh, I am allowed to speak and you are allowed to speak. And the fact that we do not fall into some Marxist-defined category and that only people within that category are allowed to talk about that, this, uh, this has to be stopped immediately by decree. And when I'm in charge, it will be. But uh, until then, at least on this show, I may discuss exactly what we were talking about, which was motherhood. And... Uh, uh, I had Susan Lappin on the show for for the early part of the show, not because she is more entitled to discuss it than I am. It's just that she has interesting original takes on it that I didn't have. Uh, for instance, she corrected me uh, quite rightly that um, that Mother's Day is something really between children and mothers, not between 
uh, husbands and mothers. Now, I'm sure some of you will disagree and say, oh, look, aren't you grateful to your wife for giving you such wonderful children every day, every hour of every day? Uh, absolutely. And, um, and, and, that is, and that is true. But in all honesty, and, uh, and I think everyone would recognize this, uh, we, we are blessed with wonderful children, and I think 90% of that is uh, God's goodness, uh, and 5% is the wonderful job she did on raising them, and 5% is what, you know what, a pretty decent job I did on raising them as well. In other words, uh, my wife gave birth to them, certainly. She carried them for nine months, sure, obviously. And, uh, and of course, I'm, I'm grateful to her for that and for, for so many other wonderful things. But uh, the, 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 the extent to which your children uh, reach your expectations or exceed your expectations, in my case, uh, that is mostly due to the good Lord. It's mostly due to uh, external factors, but to some extent, father and mother uh, working together as a team. And I'll tell you, uh, we, we have a, a wonderful feature on our website called Ask the Rabbi. So you know, when I recommend that you go and visit the website at rabbidaniellappin.com, one of the things I'm, I'm recommending you, you do is if you do have a question you'd like to submit, by all means, do so there. Ask us. And what's more, you can actually review and examine older previous questions from the past. Uh, one of the recent questions we just dealt with um, was interesting because the, every now and then the, the way we write uh, gives us away. It shows certain things. And we read the letters we receive very carefully. And one of these letters uh, said, uh, you know, so he discussing a particular problem that the couple is having. And then he said, so I decided, etc., etc. And so we explained in the answer, we explained, look, uh, you have a problem, which is the problem about which you wrote to us. But there's also another problem, and that is marriage. You've got to re-examine your marriage, and you've got to start putting time and energy into your marriage. You know why? Because in marriage, the terms I decided don't really make sense because a married couple decides jointly. Now, you, might, uh, you say, I might decide that uh, while my wife is uh, at uh, the, the store, I might decide to go outside and smoke a cigar. Okay, that's fine. But if you're talking about, I decided we should uh, spend uh, some of our savings on. No, I decided our children should uh, move to another school. No, not at all. Uh, I decided I should quit my job. No, not even that one. And so uh, it's, it's we, it's we decided. And one of the things that uh, Susan corrected me on a few minutes ago uh, was this idea of mother Mother's Day for husband? What she took that to was the habit we've seen in a number of couples, which is they call themselves mummy and daddy, and uh, not just when the children are. It's not like uh, don't speak to daddy like that, uh, or you know, please get up and help mommy. No, uh, it's to one another when their kids aren't around, and uh, we just recently encountered that, and. Uh, I I don't think we discussed it. I think our eyes might have met um, 
as, as it happened. We didn't need to discuss it because we've discussed it many times in the past between us, and, and we think it's a problem. And the reason is very simple, and that is, you know, I barely have to tell you. I know the caliber of, of you folks who listen to this show, but uh, for any newbies out there, the, the reason is that uh, it is difficult enough, challenging enough, to maintain uh, erotic intimacy and, and passionate closeness in the marriage after children come. And it's very, very important. Uh, people sometimes just fall into a bad habit where many other things are more important. And this is one of those areas, and you, you barely need me to tell you this, but this is one of those areas uh, where the damage is done subtly before you even realize it. By the time you realize it, you've got a lot of work to do. And so by calling each other mommy and daddy, instead of honey or sweetie or Susan or, or, what, or, or Daniel or whatever your names are, uh, you, you're making it a little harder. You're bringing your children into your uh, relationship even when they're not actually there. Uh, enough said on that, right? Makes sense, I hope. But 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 it but it, it is quite important. It's uh, uh, it has an effect, and it's not a good idea. So uh, so there we are um, talking about how motherhood is denigrated, okay? And that uh, all along people are are saying that. Uh, uh, and and women are do this. there's something called the mommy wars that has been have been going on for a couple of decades now at least since the 70s is when it began subtly but it grew and grew and what are the mommy wars uh, the wars between women who uh, decide <laughs> with their husbands uh, to stay home and raise their children and women who go back to work now look uh, financial necessity is a reality, right? No question about it. Uh, financial necessity is real. However, there are many couples. Uh, we are one. We certainly know many, many ourselves, and you know many couples, where the couple makes a decision that after children arrive, mother stays home with the children. Are they all of a sudden, heirs to a huge fortune? Did they win the lottery? No. And a lot of these mothers say they resent the implication from everyone. Oh, if I could afford it. And she says these are from women whose husbands make much more than their husbands. And they, oh, if I could afford it, I'd also like to stay home like you, implying that uh, there's something uh, lazy or or worth reprehensible about the mother making the decision to stay home. They say no. It comes at a sacrifice. In the same way as if you want to have an expensive vacation, you have to cut uh, spending on other areas. You have to budget. If you want a fancy nice car, you have to do, cut back on something else. Everybody has to budget at whatever level you are. And if one of the great uh, luxuries, quality of life issues that is important to you as it was to um, Susan and me when when we got married, the quality of life issue was that uh, our children would not be raised by strangers. I don't care how good the daycare was, and I, I, you know, whatever works for you works for you. This is not uh, this is not your rabbi judging you. This is your rabbi trying to be informational, trying to uh, let you know 
how people look at these things. And uh, we, we looked at it in that particular way, and many, many huge numbers of couples do exactly the same thing. They do. They cut back on other th- expenditures in order to make it possible exactly uh, for mother to stay home and uh, raise the children. Is this good for society? Of course it is. And uh, I um, I occasionally see articles, most recently in, in an online magazine called Slate, uh, where the attitude, or was it, it was Slate or The Atlantic? I'm sorry, I don't have it in front of me right now. I read an awful lot of these things just to get a, a snapshot of the culture. And uh, <clears throat> what happened is the... Um, the language used was these women who stay home with their children are a drag on society. In other words, the implication is they're not contributing to the gross national product <laughs> because they're not working. Uh, yes, uh, from an economic perspective, a national economic perspective, you could say that that is, is probably true. And uh, it's also true that uh, teachers who teach for $100,000 a year instead of becoming lawyers for $300,000 a year are also a drag on the economy, right? And if that's the case, then uh, immigrants who work for $15 an hour are a huge drag on the economy. No, this is complete rubbish, and uh, particularly given the importance of uh, the quality of the next generation. You know, ask yourself, the, the so-called greatest generation, right? The people, uh, the men who fought World War II. What sort of homes do you think they grew up in? Does it need, does it need description? It's pretty obvious. But uh, at any rate, there is, additionally, there is a, a jealousy about women who stay home with their children. A real jealousy, and it's and it's the same. It's mixed with disdain and contempt. Oh, she's you know she's just staying home with her children, but the uh, but the, there's an envy factor as well. How do I know? Well, how's about a uh, a woman speaking for an awful lot of other women, resentful of women who uh, take maternity leave, and she is now pushing to make it a uh, a requirement that companies give all women maternity leave, not because they're having a child, they're not having a child, but in order to find themselves and in order to center themselves psychologically, etc., etc. Why don't I tell you a bit more about that when we come back? And uh, I hope I will also get to talking for a few minutes about a uh, a literary and entertainment phenomenon called Fifty Shades of Grey. What's that all about? Uh, I'll tell you that coming back. First of all, make a note of the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, take a look at a, an audio product that comes with a study guide called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel, in which uh, you will discover the original source for that strange spiritual scourge that uh, torments the hearts of men, that fatal seduction of socialism. Uh, 
What is it that makes people turn to socialism? Fine, folks in the Soviet Union didn't have much of a choice. Stalin was murdering everybody who wouldn't buy onto the plan. But how about people on the campuses of American universities? Why are they being seduced by socialism? Why are those folks who work in newspapers seduced by socialism? Why did somebody go to my website and uh, go to the Contact Us uh, page, send me an email, which I was fascinated with. He wrote, uh, alluding to an earlier podcast, he said, you're absolutely right. Um, I became a teacher. I was a teacher's training college, and I was talking to somebody else, and I said, you know, why, why are you becoming a teacher? She said, because I hated the idea that schools were turning out these little capitalists, and he said, you know, what do you want to do? He said, socialists. <laughs> that's what they've got to learn to be socialists. That's all. So um, there is a seduction of socialism. Why does it work? And how does one become immune to it? It has a little bit to do with reality, but it has a lot to do with nine very mysterious verses at the beginning of the 11th chapter of Genesis. So the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. The resource is called Tower of Power. And I your rabbi back with you in just a moment the blaze on demand this is rabbi daniel lapin the progressive movement is full of lies why do americans keep falling for the deception in his new book liars glenn beck reveals the simple answer fear at our most basic level we're all afraid of something and progressives exploit this by offering us solutions to our fears Solutions based on lies and an unrelenting hunger for power and control. Understanding the roots of these lies is key to helping us stop the disease of progressivism. Liars by Glenn Beck. On sale now at glennbeck.com slash liars. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. Well, we're back with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really does work. Thanks so much for being part of the show. And uh, we, moving right along, we are probing every possible permutation of motherhood. We're carefully considering every combination and one of the areas that uh, I, I said I wanted to take a, a quick dive into um, was the tendency of, um, well, let me put it this way, no reduction in the firepower and intensity of the mommy wars. Um, you've got a group of women who uh, decide to stay home and uh, raise their children, then you've got a group of women who are focused entirely on their career and are postponing, or in some cases, uh, unbeknownst to them, ending uh, the possibility of having children. And then in the middle, you've got mothers who are trying to do it all. Uh, these are mothers who are working. And again, economic necessity is responsible, I am sure, for the majority of cases of people working. But all I would do, and I, I have on couples that have consulted me, I've said, please uh, ask yourselves how much of a priority is it? And I've often had to speak to men because men think that their biggest asset in a wife is a wife who adds to the bank account as if she was a, a financial um, 
or an economic business partner instead of a wife. And uh, I explained to guys, look, if there's no option, there's no option. And, and you know, if, if you've decided this is what you want to do, this is what you have to do. I'm just recommending, particularly early in your marriage now, you've got one child, your wife is at work, your kids with uh, daycare uh, for most of the day. The thing to ask yourself is how important is it to you? Would you rather increase your quality of life or would you rather have the extra dollars in the bank? And, you know, they sometimes say, what do you mean increasing the quality of life? And and guys, uh, all I can tell you is that it's it's a different story. Uh, the, the quality, and again, it, it may not be possible, I understand. It also may be that your wife has been so successfully conditioned by the culture that her entire self-esteem is wrapped up in her job, by the way, just as it is and probably should be for guys, uh, and but you say, wait a sec, who says women are any different? Why should women be different on this topic? <laughs> well, there's a very good reason for that. Let me explain. Is there a difference between the way men and women view money and finance? Well, yes, absolutely there is. And uh, just one uh, recent piece of information that just came across my radar screen, which I think you'll find as interesting as I did, um, is that uh, a majority, of, just by a hair, majority of uh, adults say that uh, somebody's credit score is an important factor in whether or not they would date that person. Okay, all right, that makes sense. I've got no no problem with that. On the contrary. Right, I think that uh, I think that how one deals with money is, to a large extent, a function. Not exclusively. There sometimes there's good luck, there's bad luck, but but in general, it is a function of uh, the character of the individual. Fine. All right. So uh, before they date somebody, uh, roughly half of men and men of people would like to know the person's credit rating. Now. What percentage of those would uh, allow a bad credit rating to impact their decision of whether to date that person? And the answer is, men and women are very different on this, okay? Um, Three times as many women say a bad credit rating on a man would make them not likely to want to date him, whereas only a very small number, 7% of men, say that uh, a bad credit rating for a woman would deter them from marrying her. Why? Because there is this basic recognition that a man's identity is wrapped up in his ability to make money. It is. But that's not true for a woman. In fact, on the contrary, the truth is, and here is a, a shocking secret. Uh, if You may have heard me talk about this before on the show, but it is a reality that women become more attractive to men the less financially successful they are, not the more. And women have sometimes said to me, oh, you men are frightened of our success. And the answer is, well, I mean, I suppose, uh, like we're frightened of earthquakes and tsunamis. Uh, It's not that we're frightened of them. We just try and avoid them. That's all because we don't like them. That's what it is. No, we really are not frightened of women who are career-driven. We just try and avoid them because 
that's not everything a wife could be. And uh, what I want in the woman who shares my wife, my life is not her money-making ability. As a matter of fact, to the extent that she trusts me and has confidence in me in that area, I'm impacted positively. I perform better in that area as a result of her confidence and her faith. That's, that's a very important thing. So there, there we are, three categories, three, three groups of women. And uh, the, the women who are at work with children tend to be um, the object of, of jealousy and perhaps even envy on the part of many other women. They resent the fact that these women uh, pick up and say, I have to pick up my child from, from uh, school, I've got to go. Women have uh, enormous resentment, Not, less, less so men, but other women resent it. They, oh, I could have had children as well. I'm dedicated to my job. Now I have to pick up the slack. Because, okay, this, a lot of this is going on in the workplace. I hear it from women all the time. It's one of the reasons that uh, women, much more than men, tell me, I mean men also, but mostly women hate the idea of working for a female boss. Again, and part of it is uh, this kind of resentment that women focus on women who have children. Uh, is a woman who has small children, is she and can she be totally focused on her job? I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible to be fully focused on your job and also be an attentive mom. I mean, things happen, Right. Uh, a kid falls at school, the school calls you, they want you to come on over. What are you supposed to do? And what are your fellow workers supposed to do? Look, it's a tough, tough situation. There's no question about it. And, uh, and the resentment is very real. What about women who take maternity leave? They're working and we're, everything's fine. They're popular. They're doing their job. They're looked up to in their careers. They're making progress. And then all of a sudden, in their 20s or 30s, uh, they uh, notify their office they're pregnant. Okay, fine, no harm. You know, we all we all you know be happy for her. Everything's great until it comes to a point where she's taking maternity leave, and all of a sudden, all the people who used to be her supportive sisterhood, all the girls at work she was friendly with, all of a sudden things change now. Now it's well. How long are you going to be off? Well, three months, and then she's coming back in three months' time. Well. The resentment out there is incredible. And by the way, those of you listening, ladies who are aware of this, who've seen it happen, please uh, write and um, give me some background, give me some backstory. I love to have more information on, on how this plays out in the real world. And you'll do that, of course, by going to rabbidaniellappin.com, our website, and there's a tab, contact us, shoot me a message there. I really want to know more about it. I've heard a lot, and uh, it, it, this stuff fascinates me, okay? We're talking about, you know, money and marriage, uh, reproduction and economic reality. And I, I'm working on a book about that. That's why I'm interested in picking up uh, real-life stories. Uh, obviously, won't use your, your real name, but if you, if you do some supply me with a story, I'll be very, very happy, and I will be intending to use it uh, in my book. And so uh, uh, 
the resentment builds and what happens uh, all of a sudden now there is a movement of what's called meternity what they're saying is they're saying look these women uh, really they come back and they are much more centered in life they seem they have uh, by the way as if they took a three-month vacation at the beach uh, these women come back and they are um, they they seem to be more grounded than they were before and they've got better balance in their lives we want the same thing just because we're not having children doesn't mean we should be penalized and so sure enough the pressure is now building for uh, all women to be able to get maternity leave even if they're not having a child and obviously it's not going to take very long for men to jump on that bandwagon as well and if a uh, if uh, left-wing government policies uh, increase, then don't be surprised to see government jumping in on that. I know it sounds ridiculous, right? Maternity leave for non-mothers, but that's very much um, something that is it's happening, something that is very real indeed. And um, what about the a very high proportion of women who take three months maternity leave? Their job is kept open for them. Fellow work people are carrying an extra load while they're away. Everybody is eagerly awaiting the day of their return. And then what happens? Well, they notify their job that they've changed their mind. They're staying home with their child. Well, instead of this being a cause for any celebration, I mean, I celebrate it because I'm interested in the next generation of Americans, and I'm interested in this country continuing, so I'm very happy that there'll be one more child being taken care of by the one person in the world who cares more about him than anybody else at all. So um, let me tell you about an entire country that has this very real problem going on. And so it, it turns out that the Netherlands, otherwise known as Holland, is always listed in the top five, um, top five countries in which women report high levels of happiness and satisfaction. So apparently women love living in Holland. However, would you believe, and this is, uh, I'm trying to invoke a voice of horror and indignation uh, to match the studies and research and articles I've read coming from America and the Netherlands, would you believe less than 10% of women are employed full-time? It's actually about 7.5% of Dutch women work full-time, and, um, uh, and a lot of them work part-time, but a huge number are not working at all. Um, what percentage of women wish they had more working hours? Uh, less than three percent uh women asking for more responsibility in the workplace no they refuse extended hours they refuse opportunity for advancement no don't want to do it and by the way it's not only women with children mostly women with children but not all what is it uh, the women say we're we're perfectly happy you know what do they do um, and again they they have a list of things they uh, do a lot of cooking and baking they uh, garden uh, they help in in the community they help in schools they volunteer they connect uh, look i it it makes perfect sense and uh, and the articles all speak about how women have resisted the move to try and get them into full-time employment now why on earth would a government consider that it's part part of its role is to urge women to go into full-time employment? Well, I'll tell you why. <laughs> the answer is taxation. 
the more uh, people who are working, the more opportunity to tax. It's as simple as that. That is the only interest the government has in urging women to, to go into. You could say women, government has an interest in removing obstacles, etc., etc. Yes, of course, we understand that. But urging women to go into full-time work? Yeah, that's right, because we want to be able to take a slice of their earnings. It's as simple as that. And uh, sad that women are so gullible in America. Uh, I've read a number of articles by women examining this uh, Dutch phenomenon, and most of them end rather poignantly with the women saying, well, maybe we should all go Dutch, right? Play on words there. Uh, Maybe we should, maybe the Dutch aren't all completely wrong about this. Well, maybe not. Since when did work become beautiful and wonderful and exciting and being with children less so? Fine, you know, to each his own, and I'm certainly, I'm not going to lecture and preach on that. But I will say that it is not without a cost in femininity. What am I saying? Uh, What I'm saying is that when men enter the battlefield of the marketplace, when men uh, are out there, it, it is hard work. Okay, it's hard work for women as well. But, um, that sort of work enhances masculinity. Uh, it's a good thing. Women are drawn to men who are professionally successful with strong careers. Um, Henry Kissinger uh, spoke about this a few times in in um, in his life. He spoke about uh, the the aphrodisiac effect of career success, um, but it doesn't work the other way around. Career success does not enhance femininity. It doesn't. And uh, the, um, the, the key, th- I mean, j- just think about it, right? The more time you spend doing something, wouldn't you say the more that becomes who you are, the more effective you become at that? Um, I've often pointed out that uh, you ask people, oftentimes you say, well, if you could do it all over again, would you choose the same career? And the overwhelming majority of people, whether they are plumbers or policemen or bookkeepers or ballerinas, the overwhelming majority say, I I love my work. If I could choose all over again, this is what I would choose. Isn't that a little bit far-fetched that somehow, miraculously, little Tommy always knew he wanted to be in law enforcement and became a policeman? No, he didn't. He didn't know it at all. And whatever reason drew him to a career in law enforcement, he didn't love it the first year. He didn't love it the second year. But when you do something for 20 years, it becomes you. That's you, it, it's part of who you are. This is a difficult thing for youngsters to accept and understand, but, um, but that your happiness doesn't really depend on what particular career choice you make because you will grow into it and you will become happy with it as time goes by. That becomes who you are. Men, right, as they, as they progress and they work and they strive and they struggle and they compete, it, it, it befits masculinity in a way. When women do that, they become more masculine over time. Uh, and again, all of this is, it's a trend, it's not absolutes, but uh, the bottom line is that it does take a hit. Uh, femininity does take a hit. Um, if you visit Holland, as, as I have from time to time, uh, 
it may be my imagination, but um, the women do seem more feminine to me. Uh, France, by the way, is very similar in this respect in terms of uh, huge numbers of women not working. Uh, are French women in general in the street more feminine looking than their American sisters? You know, each man makes his own decision and his own choice on that. To me, I, I do think so. Uh, but then I am an aficionado of these things. Uh, for instance, I have done careful research on the comparative pulchritude of women on the campuses of religious universities over campuses like um, uh, regular state or uh, government universities. And uh, I, I will tell you, there's no question in my mind. If, you know, you visit a campus like Liberty University, Christian University, you visit uh, Brigham Young University in Utah, the, the, the LDS University, uh, where the majority of women are looking forward ahead, thinking in terms of marriage and family. That's what they're thinking. Uh, to my eye, and I, I think it is a fairly objective eye, yes, they do look more feminine. And so in the, uh, the, this process of the uh, masculinizing of the American woman, the power growing of the American woman, uh, does this help to explain a literary and entertainment phenomenon in America? I think it does. I'm talking about something. Now, again, a caveat, I've not read the book nor seen the movie. But look, there are hundreds of places and people that do movie reviews of movies they've seen. I've cornered the market for movie reviews of movies I've never seen. And this show, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, be aware and tell your friends, this is the only place that you can hear a review of a movie that the reviewer has never seen. And, um, and, and it's not easy to find, by the way. So here I am, ready to give you a review of a book I've not read and a uh, movie I have not seen. The key thing is that there is, okay, first of all, uh, audiences in the movie theaters for the Fifty Shades of Grey uh, are women eight to one. Right, so eight women for one man in the audience, and that man is somebody who was dragged there by his lady. But uh, generally speaking, eight to one are, is the ratio. So who's made um, Fifty Shades of Grey an entertainment phenomenon? Women have. How about the book? Again, bookstores report exactly the same thing, except an even higher ratio. Uh, women who, by the way, buy more books than men in general, on this particular book, it's like all women purchasing Fifty Shades of Grey, uh, other than a few adolescent males uh, eager to to be titillated and see what it's all about. But other than that, the, the, the people, the, the category of Americans that have made Fifty Shades of Grey a success, both on the book and on the big screen, women. What is it about? Uh, in a nutshell... It is a uh, billionaire man who is supremely self-confident and uh, good-looking as well, which doesn't hurt, and uh, a very young and inexperienced woman, and she is absolutely taken up with him. And the fact that their intimate play involves just a little bit of, um, uh, shall we say, um, force, dominance, male dominance, uh, seems to make her 
even more infatuated with him. Well, I think you probably see where I'm going. I don't think, in fact, I'm positive this book would not have been the success it is had it come out 50 years ago. If it came out in 60 years ago, not a chance. First of all, uh, that level of explicitness and uh, and sexual openness in the book, that would not have been prevalent 60 years ago. It just wouldn't have been there. Uh, but even assuming that not to have been the case, the idea that women would be drawn to this, why? And the only possible answer, and uh, in this I must confess I have spoken to a number of women who've seen it in order to make sure that what I'm going to about to, what I'm about to say now is not going to uh, um, drive anybody completely furious, uh, is that um, women yearn for a strong man. Women yearn for a, a man who is confident with good reason, not bravado, uh, not uh, bullying, none of those things, but a man who is quietly and supremely confident of his ability because he is competent and able, women yearn for that sort of man. Uh, and if that can be coupled with a little bit of emotional tenderness and, and a, little of, a little authenticity and a little bit of emotional vulnerability, uh, you've got dream boy right there. And that's, I think, what the movie and the book are about. And I, I think I've given you the review there and then. Uh, for some of you, I may have saved you the, the time and expense of actually uh, experiencing it firsthand. For others, uh, no doubt you will write to confirm my brief summarization of both the book and the movie. This is their success. Yeah, I do think that uh, huge numbers of American women have masculinized themselves. They have become uh, powerful. They've become high-earning at work, comparable to, very often comparable to the men in their lives. And um, the ability of a man to dominate, and I, I use that word uh, advisedly, I use that word not in any sense of cruelty or bullying or brutality, but uh, in terms of um, sexual and emotional domination, uh, something that that women, uh, most women, most women do yearn for. That uh, is very difficult for a man who is being out earned by his wife to deliver. Very difficult indeed. Um, not even out earned, but if the mortgage is paid only because she is working and he is working, that is not a man who is going to thrill her in the bedroom in 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 this particular respect and so uh, the result the result is a a deep unfulfilled yearning on the part of women saying, you know where are these guys well um yeah not in your life that's for sure i understand that and the movie becomes irresistible the book even more so um it's fantasy land obviously and, uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of these women, contrary, by the way, to completely false figures that everybody throws out on this. It's like the 97% of scientists believe in global warming, right? You've heard that one. Lie. Uh, well, the 70% of women are engaged in marital affairs. Not true. Another lie. 
people there. 40 percent, 20. All of those figures are much, much, much too high. They're simply not true. How do I know? Another show will talk about that. But uh, but what is important to say, I think, here is that these are women certainly, you know, not contemplating an affair, not looking for, not not wanting to imperil their marriages in any way whatsoever. But uh, at the same time, um, not understanding why they can't have. And for many of them, they feel, well, they married the wrong person. No, he wasn't the wrong person when you married him. Probably. I, I don't think so. Maybe not. Probably not. But uh, over the years, um, economically in America, things have become better for you and harder for him. And that does not make uh, for Fifty Shades of Grey in uh, ordinary marital life in America today. That's as far as we go for today, my dear friends. And uh, it is with reluctance that I have to recognize the end of the show draws near. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com, the uh, the, um, uh, the resource is called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. Read more about it on the website. I think you will find that uh, this is something you could use, uh, both for yourself as for, and for a gift, also for a family conversational device, something you listen together with somebody else. It's one of the ways you build a relationship. Um, watching a movie or watching TV separates people. Listening to something or reading something brings people together. Um, you can stop it at, at any point. Um, you can take notes. You can be looking at each other while you're listening as opposed to watching a TV or a movie. Uh, you build connection with somebody, and that's really been the topic of today's show, by sharing an experience. It, it, you know, if you, you go for a walk together, you go hiking, uh, or you listen to a lecture, or you listen to an audio program, or whatever it is, music you do together, but uh, something that doesn't distract your eyes. That is what is uh, important here. And again, there are reasons for that. I've covered in a, a recent thought tool, and you can read about the thought tool also on the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, where I speak about the power of the eyes and, uh, and what role the eyes play in emotional connection. Well, that is really uh, and genuinely as far as we can go today, ladies and gentlemen. So I thank you very much indeed for being part of the show. I thank you so much for anything that you do in helping promote the show, sending links to the show by email to friends or just telling them about it. Much appreciated on, on that front. Putting it up on your Facebook and your Twitter feeds or whatever social media you use. My social media, by the way, at Twitter, it's at Daniel Lappin. And on Facebook, it's Rabbi Daniel Lappin. All easy to find and easy to join in on. So thank you very much indeed for being part of the show. Much appreciated. And um, I will be together with you a week from now again when a new show will be up. Meanwhile, I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.